0: This is the educated home buyer, everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to another week of the educated home buyer live and the best week that we've seen in interest rates in quite some time, Josh, on top of that, we got some updates on home prices year over year. Home builder numbers coming in quite a bit less than expectations down what eighteen percent or so um, what else, Josh? Welcome to the show
1: no it's a, from from an interest rate perspective it's it's all good. We're heading into a portion of the year um that is both a lull in terms of new business coming in the door but somewhat stressful because we had we lost two days last week, both in terms of work days for escrow, title, for lenders, underwriters, appraisers. Then um, we're gonna start having Christmas parties. It is amazing how often we hear from escrow companies that they can't work on our files because there's going to be a Christmas party this afternoon and they need to get their hair done and their tuxedos pressed and those fun things. So it's always a, an interesting time of the year, but from the actual nuts and bolts of what's happening, setting up for what I would expect would be a strong Q1 uh, if things keep continuing to trend in the direction they have over the last 30 days.
0: Yeah, so good stuff. So today we interviewed uh, Matt Graham from MBS Live. Most of you people are probably going, who and why does that matter? (laughs) Um, MBS Live is a subscription-based service that both Josh and I follow along with a lot of other people out there in the industry. And it's basically real-time tricker on, tricker, ticker on you know, ten year treasury note uh, or or bonds, rather, um interest rates, financial news, you know, and, and it's all being broken down. And the reason it's important for you is he came on thirty minutes with us and really gave us a lot of really good information. um nuggets, um forecasts, thoughts on what's happened, what's happened, you know, what he expects to go um or happen going forward. Um, And that episode is going to drop next week on the Educated Homebuyer Live podcast and on the YouTube channel. A lot of you guys liked the Barry Habib episode. I would go out on a limb and say this episode is better um, to some degree because of the forecast and looks at things a little bit differently than Barry. Both really good interviews, but I think you'll find value in it. So next week we'll be talking about that. Um, And this week, Josh, before we dive into questions and look at charts, We've got some big news coming out next couple of days. Um, we got, what, jobless claims tomorrow. Um, Friday, we look at PCE. No, fr- what yep. do we look at Friday? PCE. PCE? Yep. Yeah, PCE yep. on Friday. And then there's something else in there as well that I'm missing, I think.
1: Uh, I can look up the economic calendar. I don't think there's a whole lot that,
0: that great. And, and then next week i believe we have uh non-farm payroll. so we you know assuming the the news comes out like we've seen it recently um slower growth uh you know rates kind of moving in this in this you know this new uh arena if you will. um one thing that matt did say today that i think is important is that the rates now are are kind of trending without the news, um, jumping, you know, without it having to be news based, which is something that we haven't seen in a long time. And so I think that's important to note when you're out there, you know, thinking about the direction of, of mortgage rates going forward.
1: And we'll look at it a little bit. When we pull up the charts here, we have made a big move in a short period of time, and we're hitting some significant layers of resistance. Mm-hmm. But what Matt pointed out today, um, Wasn't a whole lot of data, a lot of meaty data this week. It gets a little better, like you said, the next two days. But next week, NFP is important, Um, probably not as important as it was two or three months ago. We're seeing projections of an expectation of maybe an unemployment rate at 4%. If so, the bond market will like that. Something like that could be enough to push us through the 200-day moving average, which we're hitting on almost all of the coupons for mortgage-backed securities. We're hitting some resistance on 10-year treasuries. Um, I watched another like super nerdy, high-level uh, bond market analyst today, and she had some really cool data, and they're projecting 3.9. 3.9 is kind of their next move. We've been sitting here saying, hey, 4.2, 4.25 is important, and we kind of got there quicker than either you or I are expected. So kind of be cautious that we're we're hitting something that when you see, you've seen a big move, you likely see a pullback. We're hitting some layers of resistance, but there's some things behind the scenes that are telling us there could be a move through here that's another quarter percent better in interest rate over the next couple of weeks if things fall the right way.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to give out uh, too much of the episode, but what I will say is the forecast that he gave um, is mind-boggling, um, to say the least. Uh, I, I think it's <laughs> – I, I was I was blown away um, with, with what he said. So um, I'll leave it at that. It's a little bit of a teaser, but I, I, it's definitely worth paying attention to next week. But with that, uh, I know we have Willing basically just just throwing up in the chat with the number of comments and things in here. That um, was all at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. this morning, Jim. So anybody else that has questions or comments, please put them in there. Uh, we will get to them after we take a look at some slides, which we do every single week. And then we'll come back and we'll answer those questions for you to help you guys become the educated home buyer. But we're going to start, as we always do, with inventory. So inventory has finally hit the peak for twenty 2020- twenty. Three, um, we lost three, 4,000 homes. We're going to look at the number here in just a minute. Now sitting at 566,000 homes, um, which is still above where we were this time last year, um, but only barely. Uh, Orange County sitting at 2246, Huntington Beach at 184. Both of those numbers are quite a bit less than what we saw last week. And again, it's seasonal. It's that time of the year. Um, even with mortgage rates pulling back some, you know, you you got less new listings coming to the market, but you also have a little bit more buyer demand out there in the market as well, which we're going to see in some of these charts reporting in just a moment. Same view, different chart, just kind of historical as we always do going back a little bit, just shows you where we are in inventory versus last year and then going back to 2019, which was a quote unquote more normal year. New listings again, more or less move sideways um, week over week. There's a really good chance that we're going to see new listings, numbers past 2021. It's going to be um, something we haven't seen in you know two years, right? So we're going to have more new listings come to the market than the last two years. We're still sitting above where we were last year with that. And then weekly change, as we mentioned, went from 569, 898 to 565, 875. Last year, at the same time, we went from 569, 571 to 564, 571. So we're a little bit higher than we were last week. And depending on what happens with rates and, you know, things going over the next couple of weeks, we may jump back under those 2022 or 23 numbers um, or, or no, it's 2023, 2022 numbers, um, or we may just kind of trend above them as we, you know, remain throughout uh, the rest of the year. And now this is new listings versus immediate sales. We got, again, new listings coming to the market. Immediate sales um, are higher as properties are coming to the market. Probably because, again, lack of inventory, a little bit more demand out there due to lower rates here over the last, you know, what, 10 days, Josh? I mean, is it two weeks now that rates have been trending down? Is that, is that right? Oh, or is it it's been longer? Better
1: part, of, better part of a month.
0: Okay, so better part of a month we've seen rates continue to trend down. This shows change in weekly new contracts pending from the year prior. So that zero level, um, we're back above that zero level. We're seeing more pendings um, year over year. You know, again, it's largely due to uh, to where we are, uh, again, with um, with the amount of inventory and where we are with demand. Uh, total home sales, new contracts pending. We got 52,000 new contracts pending, which is, what, slightly better than we were at the same time last year. A lot of this means nothing to most of you guys. Uh, you guys just care about where rates are going, where inventory is going. But because we do it every week, it's good to look at it. Price drops are sitting still about the same you know 0.39% versus the peak uh which was last year sitting somewhere around 43% in in the number of price sets. So less price cuts out there and less sellers will have to cut their prices now um just because again uh, of of where we are in the market in this cycle. I found this chart somewhat interesting Josh uh showing that as interest rates or I'm sorry as inventory came down what you saw is an adverse kind of play on that graph as to where home prices were headed. So as inventory hit the lowest levels, you know, back in in 2022 sometime, we saw that peak in prices about the same time. And as inventory started to come back to the market, we saw that number come down and then vice versa, right? So what we're seeing is as more inventory comes to the market, we we typically see prices come down a little bit, right? Supply and demand. And then the, the, the opposite is true um, as as more supply comes in the market we start to see prices come down or vice versa whatever i said there uh and then josh this is year over year we we talked about home prices coming out so this week we got case schiller uh, we got core logic uh this is uh american in, uh, uh american enterprise. enterprise institute talking about home prices so what are we seeing
1: yeah. Also, Case Shiller and FHFA were both in the 5 to 6% year over year. They were both up month over month and year over year. They're both at about seven to eight months consecutive month over month increases after about seven to eight consecutive month over month decreases. So all time highs on national levels, regionally, definitely can see some different stuff. American Enterprises, too. I, I like them. They're, they're nerds and they don't really get emotional about this. And their data kind of jives. Um, the highlight there is you see year-over-year home price appreciation of plus 5% and plus 4% by year-end 23 and 2024. When they say base home price appreciation projection, that's what they think is most likely. They're not guaranteeing it. They're not telling you they have a crystal ball. And they would tell you what could cause a deviation above or below the the base case. But um, that's that kind of jives with, with what uh, I would expect. How about you, Jeb?
0: No, I agreed. I mean, I think excuse me. How they calculate the data. Um, I think that, you know, essentially the, the number might get a little bit less as we move over the next couple of months because of how things reported, but at the end of the day, it comes back to supply and demand. And um, I don't I don't think we're gonna see any any sizable differences in either direction um year over year. Um, based on I mean any major differences in what we see here um going forward. So Josh, we talked a little bit about this, um, you and I off air, and and you asked about putting the chart in. So, you know, I, I started to look at this chart, and, and what this chart shows um, is essentially net worth of of different generations, and and so you have the the bottom down there traditionalist. I don't even know what the hell that really means. Um, boomers, Gen X, Millennial, uh, and and what happens is the largest cohort there of of generational wealth or net worth, if we're we're talking about it there, is in that boomer generation. And we've talked on the the Silver Tsunami episode, we've talked about it multiple times on the podcast and in lives about that generation eventually aging out, needing to sell property, whether they choose to live in it until that time comes or they sell it prior to or whatever. But what happens eventually is that that blue, that large blue uh, area there is a transfer of wealth right which means it goes to the younger generation whether it be the kids the grandkids whoever um but the what we're looking at here is that that blue box essentially moves up right and it moves up into that that yellow area and that blue area so gen x and millennials and so i started to think about that and i said i asked the question to josh i said josh as those people receive that 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 wealth if you will whether it be uh, Grandma passes away and leaves a house and a trust to to you, or someone passes away and that money um, gets left to you and and it comes in the form of cash or whatever. So that money is passed along. What happens to the people that receive that money? Most of those people don't hang on to that money, right? Most people spend that money. Now, a portion of those people will need to pay off debt. They'll need to do different things with that money. And so it'll it' get spent, right? get spent in the economy. but a large portion of those people will use that money for housing, right? The people that don't own a house may buy a house. The people that own a house now but want another house don't have the money for the down payment without pulling it out of their current house. Maybe that's the the jumpstart they need. There's so many different things that can happen, but it's such a large amount of a transfer that it's going to impact things in a meaningful way. And so I don't know if it continues to push prices up. But what I what I think happens is it doesn't allow prices to come down um, because of that. Right. It, it's more stability on that side than anything else. What are your thoughts on that, Josh? It, it To it, me, it's, it's the, a prediction. It's 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 a guess that it's nothing more what, than
1: that. What happens is we have a lot of talk about um, the haves and the have nots, the one percent, you know, and all of this. What it does is you say, if you had parents or grandparents who accumulated assets, life should be, in theory, easier for you as you come yeah. into possession of some of those assets. Absolutely. We have folks here that are like, hey, I, I I don't come from anything. My parents were first-generation immigrants. They never owned a home. I got to figure this out on my own. I don't know that it's it's worth No one should stop and cry about it. No one should go out and demonstrate out in the streets. Life is not fair. There is a portion of this that is not fair. I can tell you, you and I see this regularly, Jeb, that some people have parents, grandparents giving them a down payment. I have a listener to the show right now that's getting a $500,000 gift of equity on a property that they're buying from their mother. These things happen, but what it will tell us is it will buoy a large portion of the population that is going to be inheriting these these assets, Um, and it gives some strength. One of the things here, when you look at all that boomer wealth, some theories of why the economy is doing so well, despite high interest rates, is that boomers have a lot of money and they're outpowering the economy. There is some truth to that, and to me, it almost comes back, Jeb circles back and answers that question of, well, prices have to come down because no one can afford them. Well, really, I phone rings all day, every day. A lot of people can't afford them and don't qualify or don't qualify for what they want. But enough of them do that we still see prices going up 4 or 5% a year in most areas because of this. Either they've built up their income, they've built up their assets, they have family assets that can work. So it just is what it is. It's something to be aware of when maybe that's not your reality. So you're thinking, hey, how is the world operating? How is our economy moving in this way? This explains a bunch of it.
0: Yeah. And and I often ask, I mean, we have friends buying two, $3 million properties and I know what they do for work. And I go, how, like, how, how are they buying these types of properties? I know family's well off. So maybe family, like, I know it exists. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't have that, right? So um it's uh you know it's it's just one of those things that that it does happen. So when you you ask who are those people, those people are everywhere, unfortunately. And there's still a lot of cash out there in the market outside of those that are getting financing. Um, so the Fed watch tool. So this is something we look at. This is interest rate traders, right? So this is them putting Their predictions out there, um, you know, as to what they expect to happen over the next couple of Fed meetings. So, Josh, when we look at this December, January, both really high probabilities, almost hundred percent that the Fed does nothing, that rate cuts are done. Uh, But now there's a fifty or a forty five percent chance, not the majority, only forty five percent, that rates rate cuts start in March. What do you think of that? if the data
1: trends continue over the next 30 days that we've seen over the last 30 days that march meeting will be a greater than 50%. It's not going to go to 90%, but it's going to be up in in the 52-55% range. So we keep seeing every month when we throw these up when new data comes out the, the likelihood of a cut comes sooner and the very small chance of further hikes um, goes down e- even more. So it, it's interesting to watch really just the month over month change. You're seeing uh, the, the greatest probabilities move sooner and more. We're seeing some experts, Jeb, again, we would say experts. Uh, when I use that term, it's someone that is invested in the market that has researched it and has a, an opinion. Doesn't necessarily have to be right, but at least it's it's Fact-based, and we're seeing some people calling for 200 to 250 basis points of cuts next year. I think that's extreme and aggressive, <laughs> but there's people out there that are saying that out loud. And three months ago, no one would say anything like that. the The Fed futures market is saying about 100 basis points, most of it coming from May through the end of the year. Um, and I think what we are going to see, we've shown the chart before, Jeb, that the, the futures market is usually more accepting of Fed speak than reality. And when it turns, it turns faster and sharper than the futures market expects. And I think we will see that.
0: There you go. All right. Uh, so this is a chart that I found interesting, too. Um, kind of shows you where. The Fed members are, um, with regards to their calls, right? So there's dovish, there's hawkish, and there's those that are kind of uh, in the middle, so to speak. Um, but this chart is is really one or one or the uh, you know one or the other, uh, because I it, think the middle on this is it just shows the permanent voters. Well, yeah. it's
1: permanent voters, and the reason why they group them this way, the permanent voters typically vote with whatever the chair wants. So they're kind of centrist, re- related to what what Powell thinks, and he he is a centrist. He's he's been um, not not crazy hawkish, not crazy dovish like either one. But looking at those little V's, tell you who votes. Not all of these people vote at every meeting. So the next meeting, um, you know, this year we have two hawks and two doves voting. Next year we go and it looks like what do we have? Actually, we have three three doves and and two hawks. Next year is is the same thing. So it is skewed more dovish. So as we get data, likely to to go that direction and i thought this was this is awesome jeb how did i not how did i not fix my slide
0: you did this Um, last week too this is the new norm
1: here i'm gonna i'm gonna take us out of there so um this is literally just yesterday and and Waller moved the market. But Waller, a dove, comes out and says, I'm increasingly confident the policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy, get inflation back to 2%. If the decline in inflation continues for several more months, we could start lowering the policy rate just because inflation is lower. There's no reason to say we will keep it really high. And you would go, oh, that's a Fed member. They must all think that. Bowman comes out and she says, my baseline economic outlook continues to expect that we will need to increase the federal funds rate further to keep policy sufficiently restrictive to bring the inflation down to our 2% target in a timely way. So that's why that matters. That's the the differences in, in how they look, how they vote what they think and what they expect this chart here jeb is just showing what's happening uh around the world the light blue or the the sort of periwinkle i don't know why they didn't choose contrasting colors here the big Bro, bars you just, said,
0: you just said periwinkle
1: periwinkle yes
0: i don't even know correct. what that means
1: I, I can't help you brother so that's an insight into jeb and, and what what he is is fond of and 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 chooses to when, when uh
0: josh went to the fashion institute he learned periwinkle. Yes,
1: exactly well Either way, the uh, brighter blue, that royal blue line, we're seeing more cuts and less hikes. That's Uh, Carolina blue guys. Cuts have, (laughs) it's not Carolina blue. It looks like Duke blue. It's almost like Duke blue. Carolina blue there on the right period. So anyway, the point of the slide is we're seeing more cuts than hikes and the Fed in the next six months will be doing the same. Um, This chart just shows uh, annualized monthly core CPI, two month average, very close to 2%. Um, the Fed isn't going to make decisions off of a two-month average. Um, when we get another month next week and we see a three-month average, and in three months when we have a six-month average and we're getting close to that 2%, it's going to in fact affect their decision-making. Jeff, we had some data this morning, uh, uh, upwards revision to Q3 GDP. It already came out hot at 4.9. They bumped it up to 5.2. Yet this is the Atlanta Fed GDP now, and they are stumbling along here at about 2%. Um, with their real cast of taking in all data. And then that blue chip consensus is sitting there under one percent. So the both the data coming in is is saying a slowing economy, much lower than what we saw in Q3. Um, again, we're starting to see some experts suggesting or proposing that we may hear just in the fourth quarter, fourth quarter, not the fourth quarter, uh, the fourth quarter, see negative data. Um, Jeb, we get this question here on the top all the time on the show. Well, a recession's coming. What well, doesn't that doesn't that mean home prices are going to come down? The only time we've seen an appreciable move down in home prices due to recession. Was was the Great Recession. And we've talked about this a lot. It was a recession caused by housing. It wasn't housing brought down by a recession. Thought this was interesting here, Jeb. John Burns Consulting throws out 24 million homes in the US ripe for major renovations. We've talked about lock-in effect, people not wanting to move, but they are sitting on a lot of equity. As rates come down, we will probably see more equity lending. Um, 33% of all uh, refinances right now are cash out may maybe way off, the majority of refinances right now are, are cash out. And it's for reasons like this, people sitting on equity in aged homes, and we will continue to see that. Um, wanted to show this one here, Jeb. Over the last month, while we've seen rates improve, so you see rates come down that little orange line, and you've seen mortgage applications increase. Now, that composite index is way lower than where it was in 21, 22. But we also saw this last spring, very sensitive to rates. As rates come down, purchase applications increase. We're seeing that. We're seeing that week over week. We've seen it for four weeks. Um, And that's really the borrowers that I talked to, Jeb, I don't know about you. They're not aware of how much rates have moved. I just talked to a gentleman today. He's like, oh, I thought maybe we were at seven and a half. For most people, you're down close to seven percent and it will make yeah. a big impact.
0: Well, um, one thing I'll say about that chart too, guys is like on a not a pessimistic view, but just a view in general, like it. Anytime like you'll see headlines, purchase applications up four weeks in a row, five weeks in a row. The, the 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 base level is so low, guys. It's such a low bar for applications to increase that it's is it meaningful? Eh, I mean, maybe to a loan officer that's now getting a little bit more business than they were a couple weeks ago. But the big picture, it's we're still sitting on basically historically low levels
1: year over year is down 19% and last year this time of year was not a great year so you're down 19% from a, a depressed number so absolutely and you know we have some questions here that we'll get into in the show someone uh, saying what we're projecting for next year. And the numbers are going to be better, but they're not going to be great. So, 10 uh, year Treasury, this is over the last three months. We had peaked up. Uh, we talked about this and you saw it in the headlines at almost 5%. We're down under four and a quarter. This is just the last five days. In the last five days, I think we were about four four seven, four four eight, 448, down to 425 here at the close today. This is the chart we were talking about. The only thing you need to know is that every one of those lines, you see how we were below, below, below. We crossed the 25, we crossed the 50, we crossed the 100. We're sitting here right at the 200. That's gonna be a formidable level of resistance. And then we've got a Fibonacci line right uh, above it that will also be additional resistance. So it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens with the data the next two weeks. And if we give back some of the recent gains or if we make another run to another quarter, three eighths lower in interest rates. Throw this one in here just to give you guys the numbers every week. Uh, According to Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index, they're about 7.2 on the 30 year, a little bit higher than that on a jumbo, a little bit lower than that on an FHA. I can tell you I priced a number of these out today for conforming loan. And Jeb, we didn't put this in the slides. We had conforming loan limit increases that we We need to talk about.
0: Um but I think every loan officer on the planet's talked about it. I don't know what we need to talk about it at this rate, but
1: well, these folks may not want to they may want to know what it is. So 766, 555 for next year if you stay at that. Um, I ran a number this morning with a point. You could get that at six and a half for a well-qualified borrower. Zero points is right around seven, seven and an eight. So a little bit better than this with zero points. FHA is in that six and a half range, e- even better than this. So the numbers have gotten a ton better in a very short period of time. So if you were in the market or if you looked at it, I have a client I have to call today. He called and told me, hey, we're just gonna sit out for a while. We just can't make it work. And the rates had moved enough that they didn't wanna do 30% down. They wanted to do 25 uh, You know, in two and a half weeks they can now buy with 25% down what they could have bought with 30% down a couple weeks ago. Did they move
0: forward there?
1: I have to call them and we have to ah. discuss this. Ah,
0: Okay. Maybe they're listening to the show.
1: Awesome.
0: Um, all right. So with that guys, hopefully you found some value in that. Um, if you did hit the thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. If you haven't done so already uh, this past week, we did uh, an episode on ADUs on the educated home podcast. The audio was not great. I apologize. Something happened to my mic. I have no idea. Just all the, started working again. Nothing was changed, um, but good information if you're interested in ADU. So go check that out. And lastly, if you're looking for a mortgage professional, a real estate agent anywhere in the United States, that link right there, scrolling across the bottom will get you there. If you're listening on the podcast, there's a link in the description of the video that you can check out along with a link to all the slides. So Josh, we got a super chat when we first started out from Miss Mina. And she asked I recently signed a purchase agreement for new construction am I required to lock now or can I wait closer to delivery in May of 2024 so I don't think you're ever required to lock alone I think that's um, probably against uh, I don't know if respa would be the the right um, regulatory agency um, but nobody can make you lock alone at any point in time but Josh can speak to this uh, so I think you could wait um. I think there's enough time between now and then to at least allow a couple of weeks months to pass before you do anything but josh thoughts your audio has gone
1: there's nothing uh preventing a lender from requiring a lock as part of their policy but they can't say hey jeb you have to lock josh you don't have to there are lenders that say your loan is locked when you submit very rare not the case here so we're talking new construction on new construction when you're working with the builder's lender they may lock your loan at application with a float down option going forward um, a clear float down to whatever the market is when you get within 30 days of closing so if that's the case it may be their policy to lock but they're not going to require you and say hey you have to lock and you have to take what today's rates are so from that perspective it's probably going to be heads you win fails you also win all right
0: good stuff um willing was in here at eight o'clock in the morning uh posting questions so we're going to we're going to answer those uh there's I wonder of, if they
1: I wonder if they waited around all day for the answers or if
0: they went it's, and did it's, other it's stuff. probably set there in the chat all day long uh but I'm going to read both and then we're just going to um kind of get to it so Josh the question is rate lock if I like my rate but rates come down slightly during the loan process can I cancel the lock and relock excuse me if so is there a limit how many times you can do that how does that work and then the second part of that, kind of unrelated, but we'll address it all in the same question. Becoming a homeowner, have I officially graduated the home, the educated home buyer course, or is the journey just now beginning? So Josh, take that however you want, whichever part you want to answer first.
1: I'll let you take the second part. In terms of the rate lock, a rate lock is a rate lock. It's not, hey, we're going to offer you the the best of best case scenario, They're saying if rates get worse, you're gonna get today's rate. If rates get better, you're going to get today's rate. There is a cost to hedging your rate in the market. And the cost of that is the lock. Now, most lenders do have a float down policy. You will not float down to current market. You'll usually float down to within an eighth of the current market. so really over the last month, we've seen this. this is the first time, probably a brief window. We had a brief window earlier in February, but that was probably the first time in two or three years where we had a float down opportunity. Where in a 30, 45 day window. We had seen rates move down enough. So it is important to know. Uh, I get this all the time. I have someone that I'm working with right now came from the show and her thought, or she said, well, I want to lock it, but just let me know what I need to do. If rates go lower to get the lower rate, you don't get the best of both worlds. If you believe rates are going to go lower and you're willing to take that risk don't lock it. If you lock the rate in, you're going to get that interest rate, barring a big move down in rates. And then you would be able to renegotiate close to the best rates, but not all of that to cover the cost of the hedge.
0: All right. And I'll address the second part. So becoming a homeowner, have I officially graduated? So um, I think the fact that you show up more or less week over week for the better part of a year, you, you've probably learned a lot of what you need to learn to become that buyer. Now, with that said, uh, those that that, uh, that want the MBA, uh, that, uh, want the doctorate, if you will, they still come after they buy homes. Um, there's several of you guys in the chat, and uh, we appreciate you guys continuing to show up week over week. So depending on how far you want to take that degree, We'll determine um I guess will be decided at some point in the future. But uh you're just in the process now. So nothing is done. What I will say is take it day by day. You know, don't uh don't let the emotion make you do things you don't want to do. There's still an opportunity. It doesn't move forward. I one thing I've learned in this business of nearly 20 years is that nothing is done until it's done. Um, and even then I've seen things unravel. So just take it day by day. Uh, right. Josh, um we got some.
1: We've got one and then a follow-up from a viewer that I think is helpful here. Yeah. So Joyce asked, Hi Jeb, is there a surefire way to screen realtors for the right one? So you have the referral link. That is a way. Mm-hmm. What uh how does that
0: work? And what are additional ways to
1: screen a realtor? Or even if you connect someone with someone through that referral link, how do they screen and make sure that's the right person for it?
0: Well, here's the thing is is the referral link is a referral, right? So what I say is getting anything, whether it's a painter, whether it's uh you know, a car salesman, or you're going to go get flooring for your house. It's best, in my opinion, to start with a referral. Find somebody that, you know, that knows someone that they know, like, and trust. Maybe it's you that knows that person, or maybe you know somebody that's been through the process and they have a guy or a girl that they trust. That's a good place to start. So if you have that person, that's a good place to start. Get, have a conversation with them. See if you jive, see if they can answer your questions, see if they're the kind of person that you want to work with. And, and, and go that direction. A lot of people are either don't have that person unwilling to do it. Don't trust whatever. And so what's the next option? Well, you can go on Google and start Googling that sort of thing and and trying to figure out. And, and that's an option as well. What I will say about that is people can falsely put in reviews. People can pay people to do reviews, that sort of thing. So it's always better to start with somebody that you have some trust in and get a referral. So. Deciding on that, and, and then lastly, you know, the link is a referral link. These are people that I know, like and trust, right? So I'm not referring you to somebody I have no idea who they are. This is not a one of the the link out there with homes and whatever, a garden or whatever the hell that a link is. These are you're getting a referral from someone I know, like and trust. In fact, uh, Tyler came in here and said uh, he can vouch for this because I connected him with an agent back in 2021 up in uh, in Massachusetts, and. What a, what a great time to buy a home 2021. Um, so you nailed that one, but yeah, these are people that I've built relationships with over an extended period of time through networking, through masterminds, through paying for conferences and driving all across the country. In fact, I just signed up for one today in February where I'll see a lot of these people that you're getting referred to. I'll see them in person. So that's my spiel on that. That's a good, that's the best place to start. So it doesn't have to be me as a referral, but start with somebody you trust. Um, Josh, I wanted to go with this question. Uh, AB long time viewer, been a while, but says, how do HELOC interest rates work? Do you get the rate when you were approved for the loan or do you get the current rate when you actually withdraw the money? So maybe explain how a home equity line works. Cause some people just don't understand that, that it's a, almost like a credit card that you don't necessarily have to use immediately and talk about the, the answer there.
1: Well, think about that and relating it back to a credit card, people hear HELOC and they don't know what HELOC stands for. There's a home equity line of credit. So on a line of credit, which you correctly pointed out, you can get approved for now and borrow from later in the future. They're not going to give you a fixed rate because they don't know what rates are going to be when you actually borrow that money. So it is a variable rate. Rates can go as high as 18% on 98, 99% of home equity lines of credit. The 18% is the cap. There's no monthly adjustment cap. It adjusts monthly. It's tied to prime rate plus a margin. So if you get a $200,000 HELOC today, do nothing with it. And a year from now, you borrow $50,000 to convert your garage to an ADU. You're going to pay on that $50,000, whatever the prime rate plus your margin is at that time. Now, Some lenders will allow you to convert all or a portion of that balance to a fixed rate at whatever the fixed rate is at that time. So, say you borrow that $50,000 and rates are at 6% at that time. You go, hey, that's a really good rate for a second mortgage. I would like to lock that $50,000 at 6%. Some, but not all HELOC lenders will allow you to do that. But for the most part, it's a variable rate. You will pay. The going interest rate, which is prime plus your margin on the outstanding balance every month.
0: Good stuff. Uh, another question from AB. Uh, it's, it's going back to the loan limit says, saw an article about loan limits going way up. Uh, loan limits going way up. Will this increase or make home prices more resistant to softening? So 726,600, Josh, is, is the old limit. Is that 726, right? 726,200. 26,200, It jumped uh to seven sixty six five fifty. So forty, I mean forty thousand ish dollars, give or take. Um five and a half percent. There you go, five and a half percent. So does that soften or keep prices from softening? So we kind of answered a variation of this question last year about the same time, year before, about the same time. So understand loan limits increase. Every single year as the median home price goes up, if the median home price comes down, that doesn't come down. It just stays the same. So just so we're, we're clear on that. But, Josh, with that, does it have any impact on pricing, you think?
1: Well, um, no, I don't think uh, uh, negligible. But if anything, it would be positive. I talked to a, a client earlier today um, and we talked about a couple things. He wants to buy in Santa Cruz at about a million five. So with what he has to put down, it's going to be tough. The new high balance limit, which would apply, there is 1,149,825. He'd have to put a little bit more than 20% down to, to get to that level, which he may or may not do. But the difference is a year ago before the, the banking issues in the spring, jumbo rates were a bunch better than high balance or conforming rates. That's not the case. They're the same or a little bit worse. And the guidelines of qualifying are much harder. So the people at the high end, that will be helpful. Where this also helps is I was telling you, Jeb, I have two clients right now, one that closed last week. The, they did a loan at 750. We said, why 750? Well, lenders jumped the gun. They knew we were going to get an increase. So most lenders were doing loans up to 750. 750 at the standard balance terms. Now, if you put less than 25% down as of last year, there's an additional one point hit for a high balance loan with less than 25% down. It adds like another quarter percent to the interest rate, sometimes even more when rates are higher. So a lot of people were avoiding that like the plague. So this additional $40,000 of wiggle room there to stay to the standard balance limits and get the better terms and have the ability to do 3% down, which you don't have on the high balance, it's only a positive, but I would say a negligible benefit. You, You see it any different?
0: No, not at all. I, I think very little impact at all. Um, if anything, it allows people to put less money down when they're buying a house um, and and could allow people to purchase a little bit more home um, if they were right at that limit, which some people are. Some people just don't have the money to to do the additional down, and therefore they they're limited um, at that number. So it could help those people out, but I, I don't think for, for the majority of the you know the, the viewers watching the first time home buyers, it very little impact, if anything at all. This is a comment, but I want to I post it out there. It says, houses are up, not down. This is a weird post. And, and basically what they're referring to is the title of the video. It says the new housing market is down 18, 18% from the peak. The reason I point this out is because that's a, I, I, that's a headline, right? So the title of the video is somewhat of a headline. They read that headline and got an interpretation of what it meant. Now, there's an article in the description of the video, that if you click on it, it explains this title, right? That's the title of that that article. But let's break down what that means. So Josh, when we say the new housing market, in that case, we're talking new construction. Okay. So the new construction housing market is down 18% from the peak. So the reason I bring this up is it's important to understand exactly what is happening in titles in 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 articles youtube videos whatever right so for one they are meant to grab attention uh, but secondly sometimes you have to read between the lines so to speak to figure out what is actually happening and not just taking that title and running with it because that's what a lot of people do they say oh my god the the housing market's down 18 percent from the peak no let's let's back up. What are we talking? What is down 18% from the peak? Is it prices? Is it home sales? Are we talking new construction? So that's why it's important, as we always say, don't just read the headlines. Go into the article, read the description, read the articles, because that provides context. It's really easy to get manipulated, confused, and get false information when the full story is not there. So I just want to make that you know fully transparent, but I do have a question guys. if you'll do me a favor and 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 put your answer in the comments, so I was talking to Josh before coming on, and my thought is changing this up so it has been the 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 jeb smith uh kind of first time home buyer q and a for the better part of three years every Wednesday at five o'clock um i I almost feel I want to transition out of that. I want to take this sort of Q&A and move it to the Educated Homebuyer Podcast, which really means nothing to you guys. It's just a different place to show up. And then turn this into a weekly 30-minute or so dive into like a news article, like the one that I just mentioned, and break down what that actually means. When you talk about new construction, how does new construction affect the housing market? What does it mean when sales are down? Because if we did that in every single episode here, it there's not enough time to get through all the information. And I feel like that information is valuable. So is that something you would like? One. Put a one. You like that idea. One. You hate that idea? Two. Okay. Like it, one. Hate it. Two. Let me know. I thought you were, I thought you were gonna say nine. Is it nine? No, I don't like it. Nine.
1: Nine. Can I put in? Can I put in nine for no?
0: You can put if you put in nine, we'll take that as a no. So a one is yes. Any other numbers, a no. How's that? <laughs> All right, uh, got off tangent there. So 139. So um, I feel like there's some information missing here, Josh, but I'm gonna throw it out there. Nicole says, $10,000 a month income, $200 in monthly debt. Do I get approved on $9,800 income only? So I guess she's asking, is her debt to income ratio essentially based off $9,800?
1: You, yeah, you've been in the mortgage and real estate industry too long because you know how it's done. I understand the logic here. So what Nicole is thinking, okay, I have $200 of debt. So instead of saying I have $10,000 monthly income, are they gonna treat it like I only have $9,800 income? And the answer is no, they're gonna treat it like you have a 2% debt to income ratio to start with. So whatever your housing to income ratio is on your proposed purchase, principal, interest, taxes, insurance, that will be your housing to income ratio. They add that 2% on top of that to determine your total debt to income ratio. So Fannie, Freddie, your absolute max is 50. Freddie will actually let you go to 50.49. So with 2% other debts, you're gonna be at 48.49 or 48.0. If you're looking at FHA, we can go to 47, 46.99 or 56.99. So with the 2%, you're not gonna get to 56.99 because that would put you over 46.99 Nine on your housing to income ratio. So it's actually better for you to do it this way. There's definitely a logic in the way you were thinking that they may calculate it. Uh, and it almost sort of relates back to the way that the VA also does a residual income calculation. How much money do you have left to, to pay your bills? But hopefully that helps with how they're actually gonna look at your debt to income and qualify you.
0: All right, uh, f- 562, 562, nickel six deuce has a question about prices. I want to save it to the end because we're going to kind of go over that at the end. Uh, But Daniel Hernandez has a couple of questions here. It says, no debt. Does the absolute perfect borrower get the rate posted on Mortgage News Daily? I think it's important to point this out, Josh, because people see Mortgage News Daily. They see the Fannie Mae numbers and it it says rates are at 8% or rates are at 7% or whatever the number is. And they think, well, that's my rate no that's typically an average right and in my experience those numbers are high um typically across the board but what what are what are your thoughts on it
1: so NMD is probably the the gold standard. They're as close as anyone can get. The other one that's close is the one that we showed at the top of the show, the Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index. Optimal Blue is a pricing and lock engine that many of the biggest lenders throughout the country use. So it skews towards retail lenders, which generally have slightly higher interest rates. So uh, when we look at them, just like Jeb said, I'm generally looking at it think I can get a borrower an eighth to a quarter better than what we're seeing there, but they're pretty darn accurate. For you to look at, it's a good number. What we do not want to look at is Freddie Mac does their primary mortgage market survey. And the methodology on that is on Monday, they call lenders and say, what are you quoting on the rate today? And whoever they call, I don't know how they know who to call at the capital markets desk, but they get that number and then it's released on Thursday. So it's four days out of date. Sometimes it's too high. Sometimes it's too low. Not really indicative of anything. So the other one we don't want you to look at is bank rate. If you go out to bank rate, that is pulled from their mortgage rate tables. And the biggest liar in mortgage rate tables is the one that gets the most leads and inquiries. And then they try to explain to you why you don't qualify for the extremely ridiculously low rate that they're advertising to get you to inquire and call. So... Mortgage News Daily is not um, going to be 100 accurate. But it's going to be pretty darn close, about as good as you can get. Use MND, use Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index. But Daniel, Daniel followed up Jeb with a question here. So, what's the variance? Last week, when rates were 7.34, according to Mortgage News Daily, I was quoted 7.5 by the builders lender. So, what I will say is that's that's rare because builders lenders have been subsidizing, buying down rates, being willing to lose money on the loan to make sure the houses are moving and closing on time. So pretty rare that you would see a higher rate from the builder's lender, but this is why you need to look and shop around. A borrower putting 5% down with a 790 credit score, you have almost no loan level price adjustments. You should get the absolute best rate available. One of the reasons why we say you want to check with at least one broker is I have literally 70 different options for that loan. And just among the top five, there's probably a three eighth difference, not in interest rate, but in fee. So an eighth or a quarter difference among multiple lenders is very realistic out in in the real world. But I will go back, Jeb, I have to say this every time. Please don't make your decision off of who is quoting you the lowest interest rate. At the end of the day, six months from now, you're not going to remember whether you got 7.34 or 7.5. You will remember, did you close on time? Was it easy? Was it stressful? Could you get a hold of that person? Did they answer your questions? Did you feel like they, they were worthy of your business? So um, I'll just leave it at that.
0: No, good stuff. Yeah. Um... So to repeat what I said, because Willing asked the question, one is we change the the format. This moves to the Educated Homebuyer podcast where we do a live Q&A. We update you on the economy. And then this on on Jeb's channel essentially becomes a, a live where we discuss a topic in the housing industry like new construction or existing home sales or the home price index or What's happening with mortgage rates that particular day, time, what's happening with the Fed, that sort of thing. So a little bit more specific about a housing topic, um, article-based, that we can kind of dive into. And then the other is like this. So that's one. Two is, I hate you, don't change anything, and three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all the time. Nine, nine. nine. Um, so there we go. Uh, question from Joyce. Joyce says, can you discuss contingencies that exist in a VA loan? I only know of the one with the appraisal if it comes in low. So there's a couple of things going on here, Joyce. So when you sign a contract uh, to purchase a home, let's use California, for example. There are six, seven different contingencies depending on how the contract is written. Um, You typically have a contingency for uh, the appraisal, like you mentioned. No, regardless of it VA or, or not. And, and, and I, I realize yours is more loan specific. So we'll talk about it here in just a moment. But contingencies in general with a, with a residential purchase agreement are appraisal, you have home inspection, you have a loan contingency, you have uh, seller disclosures, you have HOA docs if it's in an association, you have an opportunity to review the title report to make sure it's a clear title. And then you may or may not have contingencies on selling a property or buying a property based on what you have to sell, that sort of thing. So that could be something that needs to be a contingency or not. So those are basic contingencies. So when it comes to specific loans, all of those same contingencies apply unless you decide to waive them. Um, But your your question's a little bit more specific in, in how VA and FHA have something called an amendatory clause. So as part of the contract that you sign, There's a clause that's part of that contract when you check an FHA or VA box that essentially adds an additional document to that contract that says, if the appraised value does not come in at whatever that number is, your your realtor should fill that number out and it should be whatever the purchase price is, then essentially you do not have to move forward with that contract. Now, here's where people are getting kind of in trouble during the pandemic is that buyers, borrowers, would waive the VA. They, they would waive the appraisal uh, contingency. And they were doing a VA loan. So the realtor on the other side says, hey, they waive the contingency. We'll accept this offer. It's $20,000, $30,000 over the asking price. Doesn't matter. If it doesn't come in, they still got to come in with the difference. Well, guess what? Little did they know, the FHA and uh, VA amendatory clause actually supersedes them waiving their contingencies. So it gives them an opportunity to still back out of the contract. That's my understanding of it. Um, So with that, Josh, you can talk to it a little bit more detail, uh, but is there anything people should know more about that when, when doing a contract? Yeah,
1: the amendatory clause, also known as the escape clause, just says a veteran or an FHA borrower cannot be compelled to complete a transaction when the property does not appraise, despite the fact that they may have technically waived their uh, appraisal contingency because they are not allowed to do that. You as a seller are required to sign an acknowledgement that you cannot compel them to complete the transaction. So it happens. That's the funny part. Maybe you should comment on that, Jeb, is that realtors will do it. They'll write contracts and say there's no appraisal contingency. I say, well, that's cool. We're also all going to sign this uh, a mandatory clause and escape clause that says that if the appraisal doesn't come in, they can't be compelled to complete the transaction.
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's it's a tough one. Um, I actually had one on one of the last transactions um, that I had with an FHA loan a couple of months back, and we were really close to accepting that FHA offer, and they were well above the asking price in this scenario. Uh, but we also had a conventional offer that was a little bit higher and didn't, and, and it wasn't an FHA and they waived it too. And so we ended up going with that, but we almost went with the FHA offer where they waived the appraisal, but we knew in theory, they still had this opportunity to back out, even though they said they weren't going to and whatever the contract essentially allowed them to do that. So we couldn't count on it hundred percent. Um, so it's just one of those things you got to kind of weigh it and feel you go with your gut and see, you know, if you trust the agent on the other side, and even then, there's no guarantees, but we were in a really good position on this particular property because we had so many offers that it was like, okay, if we get in and it doesn't work out and they decide not to move for it, it'll be okay. Like we'll, we'll still have an opportunity to go out and find someone else. So we were, we were almost there, but we had another opportunity and we decided to go that direction. So um, it's one of those things that can be tough, especially coming from a buyer's perspective because the buyer goes, well, my offer should be just as good as anyone else because I'm doing all this. I get the 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 theory and the thought behind it, but the reality is, it's not because there is still that opportunity for you to use that escape, um, even if in your original offer you're planning not to do it. So, um, Jeb, I, you know, I want to yeah. help
1: you. I want to help you out here because I know what direction you want to go with this. Ooh, We're going to go here, and we've got one, one, one.
0: no, I saw that once. One, one, one two.
1: But the, the comments here, I, I just yeah. want to clarify for them what you are saying. We are not going to stop doing the one-hour show. He's just saying instead of streaming it on Jeb Smith's YouTube channel and the Educated Homebuyer YouTube channel, he wants to only put it on the Educated Homebuyer. So we'll still be here. We will still answer your questions. Just one location for you to see it. So in addition, he's not taking anything away. He's saying, I want to add. I want to add yeah. another half hour in each week where he picks uh, an important, article out of the media and kind of goes over it for 10 minutes, kind of like he does at the top of the show here with the charts and then answers questions on it for, for 10, 20 minutes. So he's not saying he's going to take anything away. He's actually wanting to add something for you
0: guys. Yeah. And I'm wanting to change it up. I mean, quite frankly, it's uh, it's, you know, it it changes good. Um, And and I'm tired of of news articles out there with, you know, and, and, and not breaking things down and, and um, conveying information in, in, an incorrect way um because there's a lot of people out there doing that um and, and I think it would be better to take those and, and and have a conversation around them and we can still have a Q&A and, and do all that good stuff so um that's yeah so thanks Josh for clarifying um let's see here what do we got
1: uh um, an, let's go with this really one this one has
0: question. nothing to do with housing um jeb can you tell me about your tesla is it worth buying it versus gas cars would you go back into a gas car why tesla car insurance super high versus gas car so tell me about it would i buy it again i like the car i like the performance of it i like the driving of it i like the acceleration i like not having to go to go to a gas station all of those things are great the cost is substantially higher or was than, than a a, a typical gas car. And you ask, would I go back to a gas car? I still have another gas car. So yes, the answer is yes, I would go back. Um, is it worth buying? I don't know. I, I, at the moment I say no. Um, just because within the next two to three years there are going to be so many options out there with major manufacturers, um, with better guarantees, longer distances, better prices. The market's going to get flooded with options out there that I don't think you necessarily have to go with the Tesla, um, even though the Tesla's done a lot of things right, in my opinion, with, with technology. So there's that. It's expensive. Insurance is astronomical with this thing. Um, and And the reason insurance is so high is because they deem my car a sports car. Um, like they would deem like a Porsche or, or 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 some high-end performance car. It's the same insurance that that you would pay. And the reason is because God knows why. I have no idea. But I do know part of the problem is that if you get an accident with a Tesla, that they'll easily total them um, because of the battery. They don't really know how the battery performs in in high-impact accidents and or accidents in general. So they just total the car. So it's a high replacement value. So They're getting that on the front end by charging high insurance. So between the high insurance, um, you know, electricity, if you don't have, um, you know, solar and that sort of thing, you're going to pay. I mean, it's going to be a little bit of a break versus gas, depending on how often you use it. But, you know, I I would tell you anybody that tells you they're saving money has to be driving it just nonstop. It's not it's not a, a saver, in my opinion, at the moment, but it's fun. So I would buy another one. I wouldn't buy another one right now. How's that? In fact, I would sell mine right now. You want to buy it? That's I do not. I do. Not. I'm dead serious. I would sell it because I don't. I don't need another car right now. So, uh, but anyway, that's where it is. And if they continue to mass produce them like they have, the things are never gonna. They, nobody's gonna buy them because they're gonna hold zero. Like it's it's gonna be worse than than any uh, it's other not car. Even mass producing
1: it's mass price reducing. Every other well, week I see probably. a headline. They just keep yeah. cutting the prices.
0: Yeah. And that's the problem with the car. So, um, yeah, there's that. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, Josh, can you buy a house if you owe IRS debt? No lien. So you don't have any liens from IRS debt, but you owe the IRS money. Can you buy a house?
1: So the the lender doesn't really have a way of finding out about it if there is no lien and there is no collection process or collection activity. And not meaning that you're in collections, but let's say you have a payment plan if they've garnished wages, which if there's no lien, they're probably not garnishing wages. If you're a standard borrower and you're providing W-2s, pay stubs, We don't have anything in the file that's going to tell us that there is IRS debt out there. Now, if you're self-employed and we're getting tax returns from the last couple of years, we're going to require proof that you paid the tax bills. And if they were recent and not paid, that's a way that it can come up. So there's not really a hard and fast rule to say yes or no. Most likely for a non-self-employed borrower, it would not be an issue. But I would want to know more specifics and, and dig into it.
0: All right, we got a couple of questions here, Josh. Probably going to run over a little bit, but let's try to answer these as quickly as possible. Um, you know, willing ask is is HousingWire worth the membership? I would say it depends on how many articles you read. If you're somebody that likes to read a lot of the data, then I say yes. Um, it's fairly inexpensive for for the information provided. I subscribe to it. I think it's good information. Um, if you're in the industry, which I believe you are, it's, it's really good. Um, if you're an analyst, I mean, if you're not an analyst or or somebody that likes data, or if you're just the buyer out there selling the market, probably more than you want to know and just show up on a show like this and and let people break it down for you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good. Uh, Joyce has a question, Josh, I think it's a good question. Something that doesn't come up. How do you, how do buyers contact previous owners of a house? or the seller's realtor for issues if their slimy buyer's realtor from the purchase refuses to contact them back. So difficult question. Um, If you have an agent and your agent is not performing, your next step is to contact the broker of that office. Um, Like for example, I'm a Coldwell banker agent. I could be a broker. I am a broker. Um, I could have my own company. Whereas if you called me, I'm the top of the food chain. If I don't call you back, can be difficult, right? Um, you can start threatening review, you know, and that sort of thing. And people will usually jump on it and say, I don't want a bad review online. I'll, I'm willing to, what do you need? Uh, but if not, and they're in a bigger office, you contact the office manager, call the office, want to talk to the office manager. The office manager is typically going to take care of it and, and handle things with that agent so that they can get back to you. That said, your other option is to find out who the agent was on the other side. Pretty easy to do. Um, find that information, go out and contact that agent and say, you know, my, I'm the buyer of this house, this is happening. I'm wondering if we can, you know, if there's anything that can be done, that sort of thing. Hard to get things done after the fact. I'll be completely honest. Um, if it didn't come up in an inspection, um, if it wasn't there previously, unless you can prove it was there and they knew about it, you probably don't have much ground to stand on. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that it's, you would see it would it sounds like it would be a lot easier to do than it is, but I, I think it's probably gonna be a difficult, uh difficult task. So but you can try. Um Josh, what do we got here? Uh how
1: about this taxes? one, Jeb? Uh, what's, 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 what's the complication of buying a house that requires court confirmation most, most often with a probate, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there's, there's divorces, other situations where it can be required. What would you advise a buyer, uh, in terms of
0: making an offer on a home that requires court confirmation? You know, not a lot you could do there. Um, because what happened, I mean, you got to make your best offer, right? Because what happens with court confirmation sometimes is it, it can be subject to overbid if it's not subject to overbid. Then it's just like any other transaction. Somebody's making a decision uh, at the courthouse, right? There's somebody that is a a mediator and or overseeing that uh, particular file and and should be able to make a decision on somebody's behalf. And and in theory, somebody's already made a behalf you uh, made a decision. You just need somebody to confirm it. Now there are a little bit trickier situations where the the, the court is subject to overbid. So you make your best offer, and then people can come in and overbid you in court. In those cases, not a lot you can do, um, other than make your best offer. And I think there's an opportunity, uh, for you to come back and, and up your offer based on what happens there. But I don't really have any advice for you. It's, it's, you know, none of these, these situations can be difficult in time because you just don't know the timelines in a lot of these things. There's, there's a lot of moving parts, things get moved, things happen. Um, but just put your best foot forward that's really the the best advice i got for you
1: and and jeb the overbid is is overblown in terms of a fear or a worry someone can't show up at court and say i'll pay 1 more than you generally no. it's a 5 a 5% overbid yep. so if you're making something in the realm of a fair offer there aren't a whole lot of people going hey you know what i really want that house i'm going to show up at court and say i'll pay 5% more so overbids are actually fairly rare unless you somehow an agent accepted a spectacularly low offer and someone found out about this and said, I'll go to court and and overbid.
0: There you go. Uh, Maria comes in with a question that we get a lot, Josh. Why uh, do property taxes go up on your property when you purchase a house?
1: So I'm assuming Maria is in California. In California, it's a bigger deal than it is anywhere else. With Prop 13 in California, homeowners taxes, property taxes can only go up 2% a year in most situations. So if you own the home for 20, 30 years, and the home goes up two, three, 400% in value, but it could only go up 2% a year in terms of valuation for tax purposes, the state government is real eager to get that to the current market value. You'll be reassessed at what the market value is for you, which is generally the sale price, as long as it was an open market sale property listed in the MLS. And with that going forward, then you can only have 2% annual increases to your property taxes. In In other parts of the country, the sale doesn't really even come into play. They're just going to reassess once a year at whatever the market value is. But it's, it's treated differently in nearly every state, but most of them are fairly consistent other than California.
0: All right. The question that we saved uh, till the end here, Josh, where do you see prices moving in 2024? We've addressed so, this question a lot so it should well, be no surprise to most of you guys listening but yeah
1: yeah we we went back to it um and and going back to american enterprise institute they said they think the end of year figure will be five percent for 2023 they're projecting four percent for 2024 Um, absent rates going lower than I expect them to, I expect they will go lower, but we have an affordability issue. Affordability is impacting able demand, not willing demand. Lots of people would love to own a home. Fewer of them are able to buy. So we have limited able demand also met by limited supply that should keep prices going up, but anywhere from, Two, three, four, five 5% would be reasonable to me. I don't think, I mean, it would take rates going down to 4% before you saw some type of frenzy that would push it higher than that. And on the flip side, if the 8% rates from a month ago were just a preview and we see eight, eight and a half through the remainder of next year, you could see downwards pressure on it. But it's most likely that we will see rates in the 6 to 7% range for the majority of next year that will lead to home price appreciation that is muted by the limited number of people who can afford that prices and interest
0: rates. Yeah, and the only thing I'll add to that, I think Josh nailed it, um is you know, in summary, I think 2024 looks a lot like 2023 with regards to pricing. Um I think you see more home sales happening, I think you see lower rates, and I think the reason you see more home sales is because you see a little bit lower rates, um but I think housing affordability is the issue, prices continue kind of Moving sideways, um, bouncing along 3 4% somewhere in that ballpark is probably realistic. So, Josh, um, it's 6.05. Give him five more minutes. So can you guys give us a like? Um, there's 150 of you watching. Uh, I don't know how many likes because I have to shut everything down now in order to not have this thing freeze. Uh, uh, so with that, if you haven't subscribed, please do that. There's a scroller scrolling across the bottom. If you want to get pre-approved, if you want to talk to a lender, if you want to see where you stand, or if you've been through that process and need to find an agent anywhere in the country, it'll also get you there. The podcast is thriving because a lot of you guys have gone over there. If you haven't done so already, last week's episode, Barry Habib. This week's episode, ADUs. Next week's episode, Matt Graham from MBS Live. Action Pack, guys. You need to check it out. If you haven't done so already, so head over there. Josh, any final words?
1: Um, No, uh, just show up, educate yourself and and make decisions at at your pace. A lot of what is happening in the current market is people are unable to afford what they want or need or where they're currently located. We're gonna see some improvements to affordability in the next 12 months, largely due to marginally or slightly lower interest rates. So do your due diligence, prepare to become the person who can successfully become a homeowner. And when the time is right, you can can make your move. And hopefully rates are, are lower and prices don't shoot through the roof and it becomes a reality for you sooner rather than later but we missed the opportunity because i didn't say it last week but with thanksgiving we're we're just thankful that you guys show up and and ask the questions and give us a a forum to go through this with you
0: absolutely and with that guys buy right borrow smart build wealth till next week adios amigos thanks for listening to the educated home buyer want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.